Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. We are a community of people learning the way of Jesus to bless our city of Boise, Idaho, and beyond. Redemption Hill is a unique place. We are a collective of micro churches that do life together throughout the week and gather on Sundays to grow, worship, and celebrate what God is doing in our city. You are invited to join us Sundays at 9 a.m. at Discovery Church in Boise, where you can find the community you need in any season of your life. More details can be found at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the teaching segment from this week's Sunday Gathering. Afterwards, stay tuned for more information on how to get connected at Redemption Hill. All right. Good morning, guys. We have a packed house. This is awesome. At the beginning of semesters, um, so if you don't know, I'm a high school teacher. Um, so at the beginning of the semester, especially classes that are not full, something that's really funny that you notice about the class is that everybody sits further away from you. The front rows will be empty. It's really kind of weird, kind of even slightly uncomfortable. Um, I'm looking out in the room here, and it kind of feels that way right now. I did shower today, I promise. All right. So again, if you haven't met me yet, my name is Kyle. I'm on staff here. Um, and then for my, my full-time job, I, I spend time torturing teenagers as a high school teacher. Um, so the message today, as I was reflecting on it and preparing, I was thinking about the idea of the new year, as we get ready for a new year, it's, it's a really, um, we're pushed um, by everything around us that it's a time that we're supposed to be reflecting on what happened in the year before and what's coming in, the, in this next year. Um, I don't really make resolutions. I know I won't keep them anyway, but it's still a time to think about where we're at in life. And for some of us in the crowd, as we get older, time starts feeling really intimidating and Making those plans really matters, right? How am I going to use my time? Well, that can be really intimidating. What am I going to do? What is God putting in front of me for this coming year? Um, I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about calling today, but there's a couple layers to the word calling. Here's the truth. Everybody in this room is called. Okay, calling can, can mean this idea that we have that maybe somebody's going to go somewhere and do something that we've labeled big. I don't know if big is the right word for it, but something that might be really challenging, go some other country or go plant a church or something like that. But the, the truth is calling is also just how we interact as disciples of God, as, as followers of God in our, our daily life, how we participate in the local church, how we participate in our communities, our neighborhoods, those are all part of our calling too. We all have callings, and it's not one or the other, it's both. So as I say calling today, I'm referring to both, okay? And when we think about calling, sometimes those things that God puts on our heart can feel really intimidating, right? Um, have you ever felt like God was asking you to do something and you were like, there's no way I could do that? God, that's ridiculous. Um, I'm the wrong person for the job. Um, maybe you're sitting there thinking about 
ways to help in the church and you don't see ways that you can serve because you don't feel adequate for any of those things. Or maybe God has put something that feels really big and lofty in front of you. And you're like, no, 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 no. You don't understand God. There's no way. Well, Moses experienced those feelings as well. And I want to talk about that a little bit. So quick uh, brief overview of Moses' story. I'm guessing most of you know the story, but we have the Israelites in Egypt. Um, they're, they're the slaves, and Pharaoh's idea is, I want to wipe these people out, but I'm going to do it in a way that's, you know, we'll work them to death. But what's interesting is, it's not successful. They're growing in number instead. And so Pharaoh's next plan is, okay, well, we'll kill the baby boys. Have the, have the baby boys thrown into the Nile as soon as they're born. We'll wipe them out that way. Um, and we encounter this baby boy who's born. His parents try to keep him safe for a couple of months, realize it's not going to work. You know, uh, most of you in this room have, have had children. You know, when they first are born, their cries are kind of almost cutish. Um, but it doesn't take long before they figure out how to use that voice. How do you hide a baby? So after a couple months, this child is placed in a basket in the reeds of the Nile. So technically, the parents follow the directions. The baby does go into the Nile. Um, but he's in this basket. little trivia for you. The Hebrew word for that basket is um, ark. It's called an ark in Hebrew. So there's more than one ark in the Bible. Um, and he's placed in this basket in, in, in the Nile. And then Pharaoh's own daughter comes along, pulls the baby out of the water. The name Moses has to do with him being pulled from the water. And she knows that it's a Hebrew child. But yet, long story short, she's going to raise him as her son. Even the name Moses itself is an Egyptian name. It's not Hebrew. She raised, she's going to raise him as her son. After a couple of decades being raised as her son, we don't actually know truly what he thinks about this whole experience. It skims past it really fast. But we definitely get the, the idea that he recognizes that he's Hebrew, but yet he's also Egyptian. How do you wrestle with that? I, I can't even imagine what that would be like to, to be looking at these two different identities and realizing both of them apply to yourself. Um, but what we do see is we have a story after several decades where he sees a, an Egyptian beating an Israelite slave, and he ends up killing the Egyptian. And as soon as he realizes people know what he's done, he flees. Clearly, being royalty in Egypt, he's failed. But he also is not accepted by the people of Israel either. So who is he? What is he? Well, from there, he flees out into the wilderness, and what does he become? He becomes a shepherd, right? Well, that's really, really interesting. Um, most of the time when you hear the, the Christmas messages about shepherds, you hear about the shepherds being outcasts, marginalized, those types of things. That's not true. 
um, Jesse a couple weeks ago when she spoke, she presented it correctly. That's a, a standard, normal working class job in Israel. They're a shepherding people. The reason we know of them as outcasts and marginalized is because we read the text where it says that the Egyptians are prejudiced against shepherds, and they are. In their culture, they were prejudiced against them. So it's really ironic that Moses leaves the palace and goes and becomes a shepherd. I would imagine that's also really confusing for him to find himself in this role, something that all of his life he was taught was something really lowly and demeaning, and yet that's the role he finds himself in. How do you make sense of that? And while he's out there in the wilderness, we see evidence that he's wrestling with his identity and really not feeling very comfortable with where he's at. After a couple decades being a shepherd is where our story picks up. Just a couple chapters into Exodus, he's out in the wilderness with his sheep, great company, right? Good conversation and crusty. Again, reminds me of my classroom. Um, just kidding. Um, he's out there. It tells us he's in the region of Horeb, and he comes to Mount Horeb. Um, if you're not familiar with the name Horeb, you might know it by its other name, Mount Sinai. Um, he gets to this, this mountain. And here's something to know, another piece of trivia for you. When you're watching a movie, you can hear the background music and it changes and it tells you something important is about to happen, right? Well, obviously when you're reading the Bible, there's not a built-in soundtrack, but there's certain themes along the way that tell you you're supposed to pay attention. Mountains are one of them. Pretty much whenever you encounter a mountain in scripture, it's always telling you something's about to happen. Okay? File that away. If you don't remember anything else in the message today, there you go. That's what you get. Okay? He gets to this mountain. So, of course, something's going to happen. He, over in the distance, sees a bush burning. Okay, that's a little odd. But as he looks at it, he sees that the bush is burning, but yet it's not. It's on fire, but, you know, the whole science of what happens when something's on fire, it's not happening. So he does what any normal sane person would do when they see something weird and mysterious and crazy like this. He goes to approach it, right? And as he starts to get closer to the bush, the bush starts talking to him. I'm not going to ask you if any of you have ever experienced that. Um, it's probably better if you don't admit that you've experienced that. But imagine this odd experience of approaching a bush that starts calling your name. Moses. Moses, what do you do with that? This bush is calling my name. I imagine him sitting there thinking maybe the mushrooms he put on his salad this morning uh, were not the right kind. Like, what do you do with this when a bush is calling your name? Moses. I'm God. Okay, that's mind-blowing. This bush is God. And then it proceeds to tell him more. I have come to deliver Israel from the Egyptians. Okay, that's cool. And I'm sending you to go get them. Okay, that's a story shift right there. You're sending me? Can you repeat the instructions again? I'm a little confused. What do you mean you're sending me? I'm going to send you, and you're going to be the ones to lead the people out of Egypt. Now keep in mind, 
Egypt is not like just some no-name place. It's a major world empire at the time. I'm supposed to go back to Egypt and confront them and get the Israelites out? How do you respond to that? Well, this is how he responds to it. Matt, if I could have that first one, please. He says, who am I? Have you ever felt this way? Who am I? How could I possibly stand before the Pharaoh of Egypt? I'm not qualified to lead anybody. God, you've got the wrong guy. What would go through your head if you were Moses right now? Like, Think about all the different things that you'd be hearing as this bush tells you that you're supposed to go confront Egypt. And by the way, again, remember when he left, he was running away from a massive failure. He'd messed up. And now he's spent the last few decades hiding out in the desert, trying to forget his past and move on. And God is telling him, actually, no, I want you to go back and confront them. That would be heavy. What about you? What are the voices that play in your head when God asks you to do something? When I say the voices in your head, I'm not talking about a, a psychological condition. Um, when I was taking an English class uh, early on in college, I remember the professor giving us this uh, writing assignment where we were supposed to write about what are the voices that we hear playing in our head when we face challenging situations. And we all have them. You know, when somebody says something really nice about you, it feels good for a second, but you forget those pretty quick. But we, most of us in this room probably have quotes that people have said to us, things people have said to us that play when we start to feel that doubt, that question, right? What do those voices say to you? What if God stood before you right now and said, he wants you to do something. Let's find something intimidating. How about volunteering in children's ministry? That answered the question right there. Um, right? Um, kids are scary. They're scary when they're your own. Now they're somebody else's kids. Um, what would you say? I don't have the right skills. I'm not good with kids. I'm not good enough. I don't know about leading. Who would want to hear me talk? Um, maybe God wants you to help serve in the sound, doing the technology stuff back there. Maybe that's intimidating for you. I'm not good with technology. That's a little scary to me. What if I set it up so there's a bunch of feedback happening right in the middle of worship? That would be intimidating. Well, here's a really big one. What if God's asking you to go talk to that neighbor that you don't know? For me, that one actually really hits home. It's really easy for me to stand in front of people and talk. It's a lot harder for me to go make small talk with somebody else. I'm naturally quite an introvert. Um, the idea of making small talk with people is really uncomfortable for me. What would I talk to them about? He's probably going to want to talk about sports. I don't know anything about sports. Do I look athletic to you? 
Cars? My battery in my car died the other night, and I needed to ask somebody for help uh, getting a jump. And I had to find the flashlight to find the, the, the thing to open my hood. Tells you the last time I opened my hood, right? I don't know anything about cars. Um, what would I say to somebody? But yet, what if God is asking me to do that? These are big things. They don't seem like they should be big, but they're big things to us. Maybe God's asking you to dive in deeper to his word. Get to know him a little more. For some of us, that might be intimidating. Where do I start? How do I begin? Or maybe you're struggling with the question of, what if I have a moral issue in the way? Something I struggle with now or something from my past that I just am not sure that God would want to use me. We can come up with lots of these, right? Well, if it's a moral issue, here's what I will tell you. Um, The Apostle Paul begged God to remove a, quote, thorn from his side. And we don't know what that thorn was. It might have been a temptation that he was facing, or it might have been a guilt or shame from the past. He leaves it really vague, and I think he leaves it vague on purpose so that we can ask questions about the thorns that we have on our side. Okay, And do you know what God says to him when he tries to put his thorn in front of God? Um, If I could have the next slide, please. My grace is sufficient for you. Not, you're right, you suck, you're a loser, you're horrible, spawn of Satan, you shouldn't be serving. No, he just says, my grace is sufficient for you. God's grace is there for you. And that doesn't mean cover up whatever it is that you're struggling with. It just means move forward with it. Find someone in the community around you who can walk with you, who can pray with you, who can hold you accountable, who can listen. God doesn't let Moses hide from his thorns either, whatever they might be. He doesn't let him him, him hide from it. No, what he does is he sits down in front of him and he says, Moses, I know who you are. These things aren't a secret to me. I know your past. I know your struggles. And I know your future. Here's the funny thing. Even though in Moses' head, he felt like he wasn't qualified for the job. You know, he's a fugitive. He's a shepherd. God knows things about him that the voices in his head would not allow him to hear. Let me show you something from Acts 7. Um, If I could have the next one, Matt, please. Okay. In Acts 7, this is what it says. Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Sound like a guy who's not adequate for the job? Moses grew up as royalty, associating with the current Pharaoh. He was never in line to be Pharaoh, if you've ever seen a movie or something that implied that he was not. But he is the grandson of a Pharaoh. He grows up in the royal palace, exposed to all the the leading science, mathematics, exploring all the worldviews from the surrounding nations, trained specifically for how to lead people, for a civil government, how to lead armies, do all those things. 
ideal setup for somebody who's being called to go help God form a nation. And then on top of that, after his time there serving as royalty, he's out in the desert leading sheep in the very same wilderness that God's asking him to lead the people through. I don't think you could come up with a more qualified person. But yet the voices in his head wouldn't allow him to see that. That he was specially trained, specially qualified for the very things God's calling him to do. No, to him, it all looked crazy. The things God's asking you to do, they might feel crazy to you. On paper, it might be crazy. But what we need to do is to step out in faith and trust that God's been working in our lives. And not only that he has been working in our lives, that he's going to continue to work in our lives. Okay? He has a plan, and it's much bigger than the voices in our head. So how does God respond to Moses as Moses says, you've got the wrong guy? Here's the interesting thing. He doesn't say, no, 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 Moses, you're wrong. You're amazing. Look at all the tools I've given you. Look at how smart you are. And by the way, you're really good looking. He doesn't say any of this stuff. What does he say in response to Moses' doubt? Moses' self-doubt. This is what he says. If I could have the next one, Matt. I will be with you. That's his response. He doesn't say, believe in yourself, Moses. He says, I will be with you. I will be with you. You are not in this alone. I'm not calling you to step into this by yourself. I'm going to be with you on this journey. I will be beside you. Rely on me, and I will give you strength. Have faith. Let me be your provider and your protector. Let me be your wisdom. I will be with you. I am the God whose fire can devour mountains, but I've come down to you in this bush so that we could talk face to face. And I'm telling you, look beyond you and see me. I will be with you. Moses gives another excuse. He says he's slow of tongue and speech. He doesn't think he can speak well. And I've heard people where they've presented this that maybe he had some sort of challenge in his speaking. And I'm not sure I think that that's true. I think it's a reflection of his self-doubt. He doesn't think he can speak. He doesn't think his words matter. And he doesn't, who knows, maybe it's possible when he was younger, somebody told him he didn't speak very well. Maybe he, in, in some class that he was taking, somebody said, you're not the greatest speaker. So he filed it away. I don't know, but what we do know is if we were to go back to that verse from Acts 7, it tells us he was a great speaker. Either way, he's filed it away in his head that he's not a good speaker. I want to tell you a personal story here, please. Um, so bear with me for just a couple minutes here. So in the summer before third grade, I moved to this small little town in New Jersey, only a couple thousand people there. Um, if you want to put a time on it, it would have been in the mid-80s. Um, and in this, I get to this, this new small town and go to this new school. My third grade teacher uh, 
decides that I'm a little different than the rest of the students. There's something going on there, and she pushes really hard that I should be tested to try to figure out what's going on. And so they do this, this, this testing process, and uh, through this process, they determine that I have um, ADHD and what they called at that time some various other learning disabilities. Now, it's likely that there's other people in this room that have ADHD or things of that sort. Um, I know we want to speak for everybody. I'm just sharing my own personal journey as this experience goes. Okay. Um, in the mid-80s, for those of you that were alive then and remember it, ADHD was not a term that everybody was using at that point in time. It was a, a newer phrase. Many people didn't even know what to do with it. I'm not sure many people know what to do with it yet. Um, in this small town, this small school, they didn't really have tools to help you. They didn't really know what to do with you. And they had this one small classroom that served all the kids throughout the grades that were not, I don't know what word to use here, typical. And in this small classroom, it had everything from a couple of us who had some different quote, learning disabilities, to people that had some very strong cognitive or physical uh, differences. Um, all of us packed in this little room here, and I don't even remember what the room was called. They had some abbreviation for it that made no sense to a kid. Um, but I can tell you that it had a name. Everybody used it. It was the retarded class. Um, I don't like using that word retarded. It's a pretty offensive word. I'm not using it lightly. I'm just telling you that's the phrase that everybody used. And sometimes it was used intentionally in a demeaning way, but it was also just called that casually as people were, oh, you're in the retarded class. Yeah. Okay, so as a nine-year-old, this whole concept begins to shape my identity. This must be who I am. This must be what I am. Um, again, I don't use that word lightly. Um, we, we know what that word means, right? It means in a very ableist society, it means that you are lesser. Um, I mean, you can kind of put it as a synonym to stupid, but it's kind of significantly worse than that, right? Um, it's a pretty strong word. The thing is, I'm not exaggerating to tell you that this is what everybody called that classroom, and this is what everybody called the couple of kids that were in that classroom. So all the kids treated me badly. I did not have a social life there. It was pretty lonely, kind of confusing. But it's even worse that the parents, there were some parents who treated you differently because of it, but the teachers even. You were an inconvenience. You were one of those kids. Um, and they didn't hide their disdain for the fact that you were in their classroom. They didn't think you were good enough. So that was this experience uh, beginning in third grade. Um, confusing, disrupting. I talked a couple weeks ago a little bit just about some of my family experience. So when you combine the two, it was a really confusing time for me. Okay. Um, this shaped how I understood myself as a student and as a person. This must be who I am. This is what I am. Um, so even after a couple years when I moved to other places, 
this shaped my identity and, and how I saw myself. That I was lesser, that I was stupid, incapable, um, and that I didn't belong in school. Um, and this, this continues on. By the time I'm in high school, um, I actually spent most of the time cutting. I'm still impressed at how often I cut. I cut more often than I went to school. And for those of you that remember, um, so I was in high school, first half of the 90s, um, there was an answering machine at home. And they would just have an automated call that would say that I missed a couple classes that day. Well, my mom wasn't really around that much, so I would get home and just delete the messages. She had no idea. Um, so I cut more often than I went to school because being in the classroom was not a pleasant place for me to be. I didn't think it was the place for me, and it just really pushed a lot of my weaknesses out there. Beginning of my senior year, they call me into the office. They sit me down and explain to me I'm not going to graduate. My grades have been so bad that I don't have enough credits earned to graduate, so I can take another year of high school, or I can choose a different path. And I took that second option. I dropped out of high school. So that adds another piece into my identity that I am a high school dropout. Now, I did get my GED in the spring. I decided to go get my GED, and then I moved on. Um, after a couple years, I start thinking, maybe I should go to college. It seems like that's what all the other people my age have done. Maybe I should give it a shot. It seems intimidating, but I can just go take some community college classes. And one of my family members heard about it, and they, um, they pulled me aside one day and said, you know, Kyle, college isn't for everyone. You know, maybe you should find a trade or something. But yeah, just college isn't something that everybody needs to do. And we all understand what that means, right? So I do end up going. I don't do well when people tell me I can't do something. Um, I do end up going to school. I, I get my AA. It took me about eight years because I would start and stop and whatever. Um, but I did get my AA. Um, you might be surprised to find out what I specialized in. Um, early childhood development. Um, my AA qualifies me to be a preschool teacher. Um, and I don't think most of you see me as a preschool teacher, but that's, that's what my training is. High school and preschool, there's not a big difference. They're different sizes. Um, okay, but um, I'm kidding, totally kidding. Um, but school was a, a disaster. So that's, that's kind of my school experience. But a few years after that, I started feeling like I, I want to know more about God. And uh, we were going to, uh, Heather and I were going to this, this mega church at the time, and they had this non-accredited Bible school attached to it. Well, if it's not accredited, it doesn't really matter that much. I could just go and sit in the classes and whatever, right? That's not so intimidating. Well, I get in, and I'm loving it. It doesn't feel the same as school should feel. It was actually pretty intense. It was the guy that was running it was a Bible scholar who had taught at Fuller and Westminster and stuff. And um, he's a published scholar and he was teaching it. They were actually intense classes, but for some reason in my head, I didn't file it away that way. Um, partway through the classes, I kind of am like, wow, I wish everybody had something like this available to them. Not me, of course, but somebody should be doing this. More people need this. But by the time I'm done, God is yelling at me. You need to go get a bachelor's degree. You need to go get a master's degree. 
This is what you need to be doing. God, you can't be serious. Do you remember who I am? Do you remember that I'm a high school dropout? Do you remember that I'm retarded? Do you remember that college really isn't for everyone? I think you've got the wrong guy. There's no way that could be right. On top of that, God, did you forget that I have a wife, a good job? I've got a baby coming soon. It's not time for me to go do this. But God keeps yelling at me and telling me I needed to go do it. So I, I do eventually kind of lighten up on it. I'll try a couple classes. And I remember I swore Heather to secrecy. Don't tell anybody that I'm doing this because when I fail, I don't want anybody to know it will be our secret. Not if, it was when I fail. This will be our secret. Well, like, I think you can figure out if I'm a high school teacher, I obviously have a college degree. I have a bachelor's degree. I'm more than halfway through a master's degree. But this is what I would say. It's not been easy for me. There's every single class that I've taken, there's a period of time in there where I still hear those voices that say, you're in the wrong place. Maybe they're right. College is not for everyone. Um, it, it, it feels ridiculous sometimes. It feels demoralizing or frustrating. I know that there's students that blow through papers that take me more than a week to write. Um, I don't read the fastest. Um, but here's the thing. Those are my excuses. Moses had his excuses, but God didn't ask for those excuses. He asks for us to step out and trust him. Matt, can we put up that last slide again, please? God doesn't ask us for our, our excuses. What he says is, step out and I will be with you. That's what he says. I will be with you. And that's what he's saying to you. Whatever it is that you're going to be facing this year, whatever things are popping up for you, whatever challenges, whatever requests God might be making of you, or just even gentle suggestions, they might feel intimidating. Nobody's saying they're not going to feel intimidating. Those are the moments when you get to step out and see how God's going to show himself in your life. Does that make sense? So as you make your New Year's resolution, or as you face this next chapter, whatever that's going to look like for you, my challenge to you is not to say, but who am I? It's to silence those other voices in your head and remember that God says, you're not doing it alone. I'm going to be with you. All right. We're going to get ready to step into communion. Communion is a time of 
participating with Jesus in his life, his death, his resurrection. It's about participation. And as we get ready to move into that, this is what I want to challenge you on. As you prepare to to partake of the, the body and the blood, ask God what participating with him this year is going to look like. What is he going to ask of you? What are the areas that he wants to walk with you? And and genuinely ask. Maybe you might say, well, I'm already doing a lot. Okay, is that an excuse? Is he asking maybe for something more? Is he challenging you to step out a little more? Or maybe you're saying, who am I? But either way, as you go to take the elements, please take a time to set your heart before God and ask him, what is the journey going to look like this year? Help me understand what it looks like to look to you and understand that you are with me. Um, Father, it's really easy sometimes to say what we believe. It's another thing to step out in participation. Please challenge us this year to step into you, to recognize that we we want to walk with you and not just talk about you. And it will be scary. It will be intimidating for us. It will be challenging. But it's in those moments, Lord, that we actually get to see you and learn what it means to understand that you are with us. Love you, Lord. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes in your podcast feed. You can find out more on how to get connected with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org slash connection where you can fill out the Connect card and start your journey today. For regular encouragement throughout the week, follow us on Instagram at Redemption Voice. We are so glad you're here and are excited to accompany you in your story with God. We hope to see you soon.